listener, Adam, checking in in the beginning here to let you know before you get too enthralled in the interview that if you haven't made it to around two issue number 30, then there's going to be quite a big spoiler for you. So you may want to hold off until you've got a chance to read up to that point. Otherwise, you know, go ahead and listen away. It's a great interview. We really had fun doing it. And if you're not worried about spoilers, continue on. Enjoy. So, hey, guys, this is Adam of the Dollar Bin, and I'm here with Terrence. Hey, what's up? Of the Dollar Bin, and today we are, I guess we're going to focus on Chew because we have the Chew creative team <laughs> today. We've got John Lehman and Rob Guillory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, guys, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, good, good. Cool. Joel actually put this interview together, but he could not be here. He did leave us with some questions. So at some okay. point, we'll cover some of Joel's questions. Are you guys on the West Coast also? I'm in Phoenix, so not quite. I'm about <laughs> an hour uh, hour off. Yeah, and I'm in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, near New Orleans. You want to tell everybody a little bit about Chew? I mean, we've talked about it on the show a few times. We love the book. What's y'all's pitch when you guys are telling it from your point of view? The thing I say is it's a uh, story about a, a police investigator who gets psychic impressions from what he eats. So he's got to go to crime scenes and eat a lot of really gross things. That's kind of the <laughs> elevator pitch that's been honed over a couple of years. I think that's how Terrence pitched it to me. <laughs> that's how I pitched it to everybody that I've recommended this book to. <laughs> it's like at one point he eats dead body. <laughs> yeah. But then you yeah, got to kind of clarify that it's it's funny and it's not quite as gross as it sounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're, I have to keep telling people, look, if you're not on board with the humor of eating dead things, <laughs> then then this book's probably not going to be for you. Yeah. Where'd the idea come from? It's it's a oh, pretty unique oh, idea. Oh, I hate that question. Well, There's I no don't answer. know though. I can go I, look it up. I, no, I don't know either, which is why I hate that question. No. I don't. I'm not particularly like analytical about my thought processes. Yeah. So. I hate that question because after four or five years, I still have no good answer. <laughs> you know, I just I just came up with it and uh, pitched it around a lot, and no one wanted it, and decided to do it myself. So, um, how did you guys get together on the project then? Well, I'd been rejected so many times from mostly from Vertigo that I um, uh, decided to finance it myself, and I I had a job at the time, so I uh, I was you know looking for an artist, and uh, I was trying to find people and this guy brandon jerwa introduced us and uh we met in san diego and i I gave rob the pitch and he did a sample page or two and uh i brought it to stevenson and it took stevenson a little while but he eventually (laughs) you know approved it and suddenly we were going Mm -hmm. so what was the image pitch process like well actually that was really weird because i i know eric stevenson you know from being in comics for about 15 years (laughs) yeah so I wasn't actually looking to pitch image. I had pitched everyone else and didn't really want to pitch image because if they said no, I'd be screwed. So at the time I called Eric up and said, Hey, I've got a budget, but he eventually, I like the project. So find an artist, you know, find an artist that's acceptable. I I started pumping out sample pages um, pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, initially how it worked was Layman wanted, wanted to, to basically find an artist that was good, uh, that that image would approve. So he basically told me from the get-go, look, um, if image doesn't like you, uh, I have to get rid of you and find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I, I was I was kind of auditioning for my life. And uh, I, I did like four sample pages and they went so well that eventually 
eventually John kind of changed his mind and said, look, even if Image rejects this, we're going to take it somewhere else. So we kind of hooked up and it just kind of went from there, I guess. And eventually Image did come around and, and say yes. Well, I guess they're happy they did. Yeah. yeah. I've been reading Chu in trade paperback. I did not jump on as early as I probably should have. Terrence tried to convince me to do it. So he, I got the, he, he I got the first part. issue and was like, yeah, everybody needs to read this book. And it took a lot of convincing. I'm not going to lie, because, <laughs> you know, the elevator pitch, it, like you said, is a lot of dead bodies and humor. And it, it's dark to an extent. But like, I, I think the thing that's interesting about it for me and the way that I was pitching it was that people exist and they have these powers in this book, but it's not a capes and tights book. It's not a superhero book. So, you know, it all it all kind of falls into alignment really nicely yeah i i don't have a whole lot of interest in i mean th- this is ironic coming off two years of batman but uh <laughs> like i'm not a big superhero guy and if i'm gonna do a comic that's my own it's not gonna be tights and if i'm gonna do a right. superhero book i'm gonna do a do big two book because i don't see the point of doing well this is my version of spider-man except he's <laughs> in a yellow costume and uh <laughs> you, know, you know there's enough superheroes out there and uh any, any kind of independent superhero book just seems to be, this is Justice League, but here's the twist. You know, yeah, this right. is Superman, but, and, uh, you know, I just don't care about that. Is there any explanation or will there be an explanation of where these uh, characters' abilities came from? Mm. Is it just in that world? That's the way it is. You know, I think you might be able to read between the lines about some stuff and extrapolate something, but nothing will ever be completely laid out, no. Okay, that was a joke okay. question, by the way. I don't care. I yeah, like that was it. definitely good. me neither. <laughs> <laughs> we we asked that question for Joel's benefit. <laughs> Under the bus. I mean, yep. the problem with that is, um, you know, it's kind of the, like the why the last man or the lost problem is like you really want the answers, but the answers can never be as satisfying as kind of what you hope they'd be. So I'm always kind of of the mind that it, it's better not to give an answer and and leave you to decide your own you know kind of thing i agree i love that stuff yeah no, that way it. you're not going to be disappointed in anything but yourself <laughs> <laughs> you have no opportunity to disappoint us in that regard yeah i'll find other ways that's for sure <laughs> john so there are 20 different characters with powers you know in uh-huh. this in the story um that's did crazy. you have the exactly like you know that was me just spitballing but did you lay out how these powers were gonna or, or how they were gonna manifest themselves and how much latin study did you have to do to come up with all of oh these? well you know some i was an english major and some of the classes i took was etymology you know uh, uh, history of uh, languages and that that came in pretty handy but you know the food power stuff i don't think a food power person got like, like i think the first time we introduced a SIBO, uh, another food power person was in issue nine yeah. And uh, they didn't come at the fast and furious pace that they do now. You know, mm-hmm. I think there might have been one in the, the third arc. And then, you know, they started coming faster in four. And then, and, you know, then, you know, some arcs we just haven't let up. There were three SIBA paths and that was sort of it in the in the pitch document. And then, you know, everything's sort of grown out of that. And, you know, so I'm going to do a case this this issue. What's the case going to be? And typically I eat and, you know, come up with <laughs> ideas. 
you know, last issue I was writing, I was sitting down trying to figure out a case. You know, I need I need something. What's the food power? What is it? And it didn't turn out to be a food power. It turned out to be a food weapons manufacturer. <laughs> and I ate a hot fudge sundae with my kid. I'm like, yep, he's got a hot fudge blaster. And he like <laughs> cooling hot fudge and boom, that's the issue right there. <laughs> you know, that's the case. And, and the case, there's always like the soap opera at the beginning and the end, all the character pieces. And typically I know that first and then do the case. And I'll have, sometimes I'll have like 12 issues, 12 pages of an issue written and not know what the case is. And I'll be like, Oh, I gotta like write the middle of this issue and, you know, come up with some, you know, wacky goofy food thing. Before we get too far uh, ahead. Cause I, I wanted to go back and, you know, um, you know, I was familiar with John's work prior to being Chew, but I wanted to know, Rob, what were you working on when the pitch kind of uh, solidified itself when you guys were getting ready to pitch this? Uh, nothing you would know, and that's probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was working on a bunch of uh, independent stuff. Like, I did some stuff for Tokyo Pop, uh, for Random House in, in Great Britain, a bunch of stuff for Ape, Ape, Ape Entertainment. Most of it, actually, like, I got paid for most of it, but most of it, somehow or another never made it to publication it was really really weird like every time i would finish a project uh something would happen and the project would like vanish and never never see print so whenever me and layman hooked up i just finished a tokyo pop thing and literally the second i i hit upload and sent the file our, our editor got fired and the project <laughs> got completely killed and it just yeah. fell apart like and that happened so many times in my career so i really wasn't working on a whole lot before uh <laughs> before this happened or nothing you would know have you um accepted the success of chew have you been prepared for the success that you received through chew well it was freaky in the beginning i mean i think i think me and Lehman both kind of felt this way the first time uh we hit san diego comic-con after chew came out the first two issues we had only released two issues by that point and it was our first big comic-con thing and uh it was huge people were coming out of the woodwork uh just showing all this love and i think we were both a little freaked out by it because then, then we have to go back home and like keep working. Um, it's like I hope I hope we don't screw this up, you know. And now we're like forty issues later, and it, it's it was pretty trippy in the beginning. You know, you you start to get used to it, and it's it's weird because it's taken us so many places, you know, geographically and you know career wise too. You know, who who would have thought I'd been writing Batman? And you know, three weeks ago I was in India, Mexico City. Before that, and and without Chew, like it took a long time to sort of see it as a hit and even compared to you know saga or walking dead or the sales compared to batman it's not really that big of a hit but for a creator owned book that you know has two people working on it it's kind of all the hit we need and so chew's pretty much keeping you guys both pretty busy right now right yeah well i'm trying to get ahead i i can handle two books but um i got a little burned out on uh you know batman they kept dangling one shiny object after another <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, do you want to do a Catwoman? Do you want to do a Clayface? Do you want to do an annual? Yeah. Do you want to do a double-sized issue? And suddenly I was just you know, racing to keep up. And my natural instinct is to try to be two or three issues ahead, which I'm getting there. And I'd, I'd like to get really far ahead, then take on a new project. And she's pretty much my full-time gig. I mean, I do... I've been doing a lot of variant covers and got guest covers for other books just for fun. But she was she was the only like thing where I do like all the penciling, all the inking, all the coloring. I mean, it's it's a full time job in and of itself, you know. Yeah, I see on y'all's uh, on the website for your daily sketches, it says you've been busy working on Chew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's pretty sad. Like, I, I've tried to do the daily sketch thing. I try to do commissions here and there. And I, it's gotten so bad, I've created a folder in my Gmail account that, that's just future commissions. <laughs> for one, I'm like, well, I can't do it now, but, like, maybe one day I'll get to it. So I'll put you on the list. And it's, it's a massive list. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Have you guys had time to still hit cons and uh, all that stuff? I think both of us have been slowing down. Yeah. Like this year, I'm I'm uh, going farther for longer, but doing less shows. You know, I was doing yeah. about two, maybe maybe three shows every four months. You know, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. You know, so now I'm I'm doing maybe one show every three months, but I'm going to like London or you know somewhere far, just because who knows how long I'm going to have these opportunities for. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, Rob, I I actually got this email. We just uh, <laughs> we just signed a. Uh, a Polish and a Portuguese deal. Uh, I got the email from Christine about an hour ago, Rob. So that's official. Sweet. Uh, but yeah, I do cons too. Uh, I, I maybe do. I mean, I, it, it, last year I kind of burned out on them. I was doing about maybe a show a month, um, mm-hmm. which is just way too much, especially like doing a, a book. You know, basically I can put I can pull out an issue every five weeks ish. But this year I'm only doing maybe I think five or six shows total. Um, and nothing like overseas or anything. It's, it's well, you got something that's going to slow you down too, Rob. Oh yeah, then I'm having we're, <laughs> we're having our second a second child in June, so that's going to be a whole other, a whole other thing. Well, congratulations! I I, I know the plight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you hit conventions, Rob, do you get to do uh, con- convention sketches and stuff like that? Yeah, I've gotten kind of I've gotten a bit smarter about them. Like, yeah. I'm, Whenever I go to shows, I, I usually, like in the very beginning with Chew, I used to go to Comic-Con or something every year and just burn myself out every year. Um, yeah. Just doing all these, you know, doing like 20-something sketches every weekend. And whenever I got home, I would have to try to go back to work and be completely just dead inside. <laughs> um, so I've just gotten, I've gotten into the habit of taking uh, pre-orders before the show and kind of doing everything before I get there. So whenever I get there, I don't do anything. Which is kind of like I'm. I'm kind of lazy at heart, but I'm just never given the opportunity or the time to be lazy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's pretty much how I handle commissions nowadays. So John, when you guys are at a show and he's doing all these commissions, what do you do? I'm drinking and doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has to represent, and that is me. <laughs> that's called networking in some circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except I'm making enemies instead of friends. <laughs> Anti-networking. Oh, with uh, with Chu, you've been pitching it around for a really long time. Did you have a? Do you have an, an ending in mind already? Do you already have it? Oh, pretty yeah. much plotted yeah, I had out. An ending from the beginning. Yeah, I've known the ending all along, and you know, only in my wildest dreams did I think that I would be able to to tell it in its entirety. You know, I originally hired Rob for like five issues thinking it would take a few years to be profitable. Yeah. And what I would do is, is hire artists per arc, you know, and have to take breaks to, to work and get my money back. Yeah. And then it took off almost immediately. So, you know, suddenly the best case scenario, if you could do chew for any amount of time, uh, what would it be? And the answer was 60 issues. And so I said very early on, we're going to go 60 issues, and we've been uh, aiming for that the entire time. Well, that said, it's getting close. Like, 
<laughs> yeah, so. it, it is. And we're going to pad it a little bit. You know, we've got a Poyo <laughs> special. We've got a Revival crossover. You know, we've, we've got it. It's not going to be over in 20 months, but it's going <laughs> to be over before you know it. And, you know, we're two thirds of the way in. I got to I got to answer questions that have been made. And, you know, there are people who are destined to die at certain points. And, uh, oh, you know, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I don't you know, I don't like making like drawing, you know, comparisons to other books. But like it's sort of like how I felt like how I read this book and how I feel about it is sort of like how I felt when I was reading Preacher, you know, knowing that it was going to be a finite thing and, and just kind of enjoying the entire ride the whole way. Well, you know, I think the better books and all my favorite books have it, you know, Preacher, Why, Transmet, you know, Lock and Key, uh, Scalped. You know, I think if you don't have an ending, eventually you're going to be treading your wheels and and you're going to lose impact. You know, if, if you're going into a book and just say, I want this to run forever, uh, you know, th- there's nothing to be working towards. And f- for us, every moment kind of has to count. You know, part of it is we don't have a fill-in issue. We're not going to – if we get behind, Rob takes a break rather than us bringing in some chump to do a a, 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 a nothing issue that doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because some of these Vertigo books, the books that I like, they've got a company saying you have to stay on schedule. So when the artist falls off, you know they bring in some, some pitch hitters and you get some forgettable stories that are kind of written just to get product out there. And, and we're not going to do that. Just don't do the uh, countdown to the last issue like Lock and Key did. I think a little part of me died every time uh, I got a new issue and it had that countdown on it. Oh, we're going to do that at least once because uh, <laughs> I, 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 I <laughs> Rob, that actually kind of um, leads, you know, kind of piggybacks towards another question that I was going to ask. And it's about your process. It, I mean, as far as I can tell, you pencil, ink, color, do pretty much everything for this series art wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were saying that it takes you about five weeks to crank out an issue. Do you just feel completely exhausted at the end of that? Because, I mean, you know, you got to think a lot of people can put out an issue, you know, in, in a basically in a month mm-hmm. and they're only penciling or they're they're only inking or, or you know, or the, things like that. So how does your work schedule kind of affect you? Well, in the first when we first started the book, like John said, we we only planned it as a five issue thing because we didn't know if we'd be able we didn't know if anyone, anyone would buy the thing. But of course, that changed. But the first five issues I started on like about a year before the first issue came out. So I spent almost a year on the first five issues alone. So the second that it hit and then it blew up, I suddenly realized like, holy crap, like I'm going to have to like step up my production schedule to meet the demand. Because I like at, at that point, I was doing an issue every two months ish. And now this is a monthly book. So things have to change. So I, I kind of Got smart, uh, got a color assistant who's a huge, huge help on that, uh, named Taylor Wells, who's been great. And basically, I've kind of gotten it down to a science where the first week and a half-ish is is just penciling uh, and just kind of planning everything out. The two weeks after that are all coloring, or uh, all inking, which is kind of leisurely. I can kind of turn my brain off and do that. So it's not too too much of a burnout. And the last week is all um, colors, which is the hardest week because it's just all computer work. And I'm mostly I'm more I'm more of a hands-on guy. I, I I can use technology. I just don't like to. So the the last week is the burnout week, and then the week after that, uh, after I finish the issue, I usually I usually take like a day or two off just to kind of um, kind of recalibrate before the next issue. 
So I, I kind of pad my schedule a bit so I can be productive, but at the same time not kill myself because I do have a family and everything. So it's 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 it can get a little hairy between issues. It's the jump between like I just finished issue forty and I'm now working on uh, forty one, and there's a mental shift that kind of happens between every issue for me because every issue, though it is a continuous story, every issue to me feels like its own thing. Like we'll have an issue that's like it'll be a polio one shot that's that feels like an action movie, and then the right. very next the, the very next issue will be. Uh, more comedic, or it'll be more like suspense or horror or something like that. So every issue feels like its own thing. It's always like a recalibrating in my brain to like jump from one issue to the next, and that can take a few days to kind of kind of adjust to. Okay, so and so just going back for a second, you're you're doing pencil and inking traditionally, correct? Yeah. Okay, because I mean it's it's another one of those things where like I'm I'm seeing a lot of artists are talking about moving to the computer as far as uh, doing all of their pencils there or doing all of their inks there. And it's almost becoming, it's almost seeming like aside from colors, somebody else is doing some other step, you know, the artist is doing some other step uh, mm-hmm. digitally. And it's good to see, you know, I, for me, I, I really like sort of the traditional penciling and inking style. And, and I, you know, it makes me feel good to see people still kind of making comics in that fashion. Like I said, I, I kind of have this fear of technology where I like I love it. Like I have a really nice Cintiq 24 uh, inch tablet that's that's awesome <laughs> that I use for my coloring. But I've only gotten that in the last year after like two years of deliberating about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, just because like I'm, I I have this probably illogical fear that like if I if I jump completely digital, I'll com- I'll forget how to draw analog, <laughs> and I don't, like I, I won't have the technology with me always. And I have this like. I don't know if this is like a, a Skynet kind of thing where I'm like always afraid the technology is going to like turn on me at some point. Uh, so like, I just I just like it, I feel like jumping into it with like actually getting hands on with pen, pen and ink actually keeps me sharp. It's kind of like weightlifting to me for some reason. And I always I always kind of fuss at guys like I know a lot of artists that I love who, who are, are doing almost all uh, digital. And I think they're crazy. Just from a purely like, I mean, like a, a sizable part of my income is actually uh, original art sales. Like, I don't know why you would make that jump when you there's this whole other like uh, line of income you could possibly be making at, you know, no extra cost to you. I, I'm, I'm so old school that way that it just doesn't make sense to cut that out. Yeah, as an original art collector, I've been eyeing some Chew pages for a while now. I'm hoping to pick one up soon. You totally should. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like uh, guys moving digital, I mean, it, it scares me a little. Like, uh, you know, Brent Anderson is 100% digital now. And, uh, oh, is he really? And wow. like all the new Astro City stuff has been all, it's all digital. Can so, you tell? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, like if, if you look at some of the, his early pages, it's hard to tell if it's because he's gone digital or just because it's... You know, he's, his style's changed a little bit over the years. But uh-huh. he actually said, like an interview that we did with him a couple years ago, he had said that it was really hard for him to, when he first changed digital, he realized how far he could zoom in on stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it took him a while to, con- he, had to he had to convince himself that this is not going to show up on the printed page. Yeah. <laughs> and that sped him up. But he said he got really slow. He really slowed down when he went digital. But since then, he's, he's sped back up. Well, that was actually a fear of mine whenever I started. I started with the Cintiq, just coloring and everything was I'm, I, I have a tendency to be really, really, really anal. Um, and I was afraid that with the ability to zoom in that close, that I would just focus on like one little panel 
for like an entire day. And I was just afraid I would just go nuts with the amount of like control over the, the minute detail. So I've kind of had to had to let that go. And actually, working with Layman has been very good for me, uh, letting go and kind of um, not being as hyper focused on detail and whatnot, because Layman's way more laid back in that respect than I am, I think, at least initially, because I feel like when we first started collaborating, I was way more like everything had to be perfect. Like if there were any like production flaws in the print, uh, in, in the single issues, I would freak. And Layman was always the guy that has been in the, the business 15 years and was just kind of like, eh, whatever, we'll fix it. And no one noticed. Like you're the yeah, only- when, I, when I was an editor at Wildstorm, my goal for many years was to have a perfect issue. And, you know, there'd always be a typo or, you know, a lettering thing. It, it, I learned after a while it didn't exist. And first of all, you, you got to ask yourself, A, can you live with it? And is anyone going to notice, more importantly? And there can be something that just drives you crazy, and then the issue comes out, not a single person on Earth notices, and you kind of got to take that into perspective and be willing to let that go. You know, not only was I seeking the perfect issue, but I worked with some people who who went about it all wrong. They'd be like, you know, I always thought Fred should be left-handed, so can you have the artist redraw his watch on the left hand? And it's like, no, dude. All you're going to do is, you know, piss off your artist and make the artist less uh, enthusiastic. And so really, I just try to, like, let Rob do his thing. And and I don't know, like, maybe once every three or four months, I have a a noodle for him, and usually usually it's a coloring thing. But corrections are pretty few and far between, I think. What was the last one, Rob? Was it a cover? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember. I mean, in the, in the course of 40 issues, I mean, there have maybe been like two. Oh, it was the 41 cover. It was the 41 <laughs> cover. Oh, yeah, right. Do you, do you want to talk about that? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was the, la- that was the last co- uh, correction. Yeah, I mean, typically, and then... You know, we did some back and forth on the volume eight cover. Like typically we we do a little more back and forth on the covers because I I usually pick the logo color and, you know, do the sort of production of the uh, covers. So but like interior wise, very rarely is there. uh, I can't remember the last correction, you know, on an interior thing. Mm. And even cover stuff isn't typically corrections it's just like oh try coloring it this way or you know try doing that uh the tpb8 cover he did a baby blue that i just hated <laughs> and so he went in and added like a slight purple grad to it and uh made it all better so what kind of scripts are you sending him are they really tight scripts or you 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 give rob room to play around i'll let rob answer that and then i'll try to answer that <laughs> well like I said, before John, I, I've done a lot of stuff in the indie scene, and um, I worked with a lot of different writers, and I, I had had the worst of the worst scripts, like that weren't, they weren't even scripts, they were like notes on a cocktail napkin, and then I had the super high detailed stuff, and Layman's stuff is like right in the middle. It's perfect. It's like the, the, the it, it's enough detail to where I know where he's going or what he's going for. But it's it's loose enough that I can kind of improvise and add my own spin to it. And it's just perfect. I mean, uh, it's allowed me to kind of like have a voice in it, even as the artist. I mean, I, that's pretty much all I say. Some pages I, I, you know, see very clearly in my head and, uh, you know, we'll say, OK, th- this has four tiers and the first tier is three equal size panels and then three panels that are equal size widescreen. 
And then some pages I have no idea what it is, and I just, you know, <laughs> let Rob pick. And even even when I say that, you know, if Rob comes up with something he likes better, that's part of the, you know, the don't assume complete control. You uh, you lay it out there as you see it, and then uh, see if the artist can come up with something better. And Lehman's, um, he's really, really good. He's probably the most visual writer I've ever worked with. Like, he has a really good sense of a format of breaking up the comic page and that kind of thing. Like, you look at the origin page that we do in the uh, in every issue, uh, Layman came up with that format, and it's perfect. And we've had a lot of instances like that where he's just had a really vivid, like, clear picture of what this is supposed to look like. And I can put a spin on it if I want, but a lot of times he's he's right on the money anyway. Well, and, and we've we've got a vocabulary now after 40 issues where I remember the thing that took me the longest in the last issue that I wrote was uh, where there was a, a Cebapath vision where I'm like, yeah, Rob, take, you know, somebody was eating something and seeing, you know, a vision. And I'm like, Rob, take this panel from issue 19, page four, panel three, and this panel from this. And I had to dig all that shit up. And uh, but yet there's a lot of callbacks now to different issues. You know, the, oh, this page is like this page or, you know, this, you know, we're like I said, a, a kind of a visual vocabulary. I definitely agree with that. Like as a reader, I think the visual vocabulary is, you know, it helps out making it a very smooth read. And, and I've never. It's I've getting never tough after point. issue, you know, after 40 issues that I'll be like, OK, now here's a panel from issue eight. And I'll be like, wait, is that issue eight or issue seven? And it's like it's not as clear <laughs> as it used to be because there's so many you know issues under the bridge. Oh, man. So with uh, John, with you uh, having the um, experience and with Rob being kind of a greenhorn, have you guys learned from each other by working together on this? Oh, I'm sure he has. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned to not care as much from Layman. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's my legacy. I've taught my wife that too. Bobby, with that, do you guys like bump heads on parts of story? Um, you know, are there things where Rob, have you flat out like refused to just be like, you know, refused to draw something <laughs> or said like this is ridiculous? Uh, I ask. I think I ask questions more than anything else. Like I just say, well, would this character do this or would this character do that? How about this? We butted heads maybe once or twice. The book's still going. <laughs> so, I'm also, you know. Despite it being like gross and and stuff, it's I don't think Bob, Rob and I want um, it to become like pornographic or like uber violent. So we're, we're sort of on the same page that way that we don't we both sort of have our limits. And, uh, you know, so, somebody asked, you know, are you going to outgross? You know, <laughs> have you still got something planned that's going to be grosser than anything you've ever done? And it's like, no, I'm not really trying to top myself that way. You know, it's more about the character and the story at this point you know i think think probably the grossest stuff has already happened has there been anything that you guys have done and kind of questioned and decided to not do or anything that was a little too out there i think the the closest one was the poo thing in issue six (laughs) and we went with it uh, you know you know he never actually ate it but but even the threat of it was a little much for me i've got i've got a pretty strong gag reflex and you know it turned out fine and and you know nothing can top that (laughs) <laughs> being that you've had the, the plot points and kind of everything planned out how much has the story morphed over the years um while you've been working on it it has and it hasn't i mean the thing that that i've done is you know i have certain things figured out like okay i know where this character needs to be at this issue 
typically it's every five issues, you know, every arc, I kind of know where the characters need to be, you know, so I'll be very clear what's going to happen in 26, 27 and 30 and have no idea what's going to happen in 28 and 29. And as a result, I end up writing out of sequence. Like I've written 40, I've written 41 and 44, but not 42 and 43 at this point. (laughs) And I was trying to decide whether I should write 42 or 45 next, but then I said fuck it and started writing uh, the new Poyo today. <laughs> Speaking of Poyo, like, are there characters that when you put them in the book, they've sort of, you know, as far as your script goes or what you had laid out for them initially, that they've taken a, a new direction? Because, I mean, you know, without spoiling anything, I was a huge fan of uh, Tony with an eye, Chew. Yeah, um, well, I mean— I would say the three characters who have sort of assumed a life of their own just from the forcefulness of their personalities in different ways was her, John Colby, <laughs> and Poyo. You know, they're all – Tony with an I and Colby are the funnest to write. And Poyo sometimes how I think resonates with the fans because, uh, you know, his stories are, are – is Chew dialed up to 11. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the rules don't necessarily apply. I mean, Chew does have its own sort of internal logic where we throw that out the window for Poyo. But yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I always knew Tony with an eye, you know, there'd be a sister and, you know, she would die. But but I didn't sort of realize how um, kind of lovable and how much she'd end up stealing the show to the point where, you know, she got her own arc You right. know, before we killed her. That wasn't necessarily something I planned. But, you know, as I got closer, like I'm always about 10 issues a- ahead of the game, you know, where I know that kind of fairly clearly. And then it gets kind of nebulous, but I, you know, I know those big kind of, I guess, support beams of where the story is going. Did you get any angry letters about that death? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking forward to a lot more angry letters as we get uh, as we get closer. Oh my god, that's the, another thing you like about that was when you got ready to introduce Poyo, were you like, okay, here comes the atom bomb that. <laughs> Because, I mean, that's well, really you know, what, No, know. actually, you know, it was Poyo, – Poyo was sort of the one kind of, you know, happy mistake because I just introduced Poyo as like a MacGuffin, as like this <laughs> like awesome cockfighting rooster and, you know, that was just so great that everyone, you know, you know worshipped worshipped him. And then I put him in action in 12 and kind of what happened was – I rarely second guess myself as I write, but I had him leap out of his cage and peck a dude's eye out. And then Rob was drawing it. And I thought, man, you know what would have been funnier if he like ripped the dude's heart out. So then I knew I had to bring Poyo back. And and ever since then, it's been a case of kind of uh, one upping, you know, with, with each appearance. I first kind of got the hint that Poyo was going to be really big, like. He wasn't in the initial pitch. Like whenever I, I got the the pitch document from from Layman, there was no mention of Polio. So I, I just remembered because we talk on chat like pretty much every day. And uh, at some point, I was asking about like, well, what's the cover to issue eight going to look like? John's like, oh, there's this chicken, and he's, uh, <laughs> this guy he's got a he's got a luchador mask. <laughs> it's like, wait, he has a luchador mask. <laughs> like, All right, so I just drew it up and. then all of a sudden, it ended up when it debuted, it was on some blog, and I went down to the comment section, and the very first comment was a guy saying, like, I don't know what she is, but is that chicken wearing a loose coat? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like the greatest thing I've ever seen. Uh, and that was pretty much the beginning, I, I think. <laughs> so at that point, you didn't ask yourself, what the hell have I gotten myself into? What has this guy got me drawing? Well, like, in the very beginning, she wasn't a really funny book. 
I mean, whenever I got the first, the first three issues were written before I came on. So they were, they, there were some funny moments, but like, if you look at issue one, issue one's pretty tame as far as humor wise. It, it's kind of more straight procedural cop story. And then issue two gets weird with like, you know, uh, Mason Savoy jumping through the window and like kung fuing all the, all the Yakuza guys. And then three gets a little weirder, but four is where things get really, really weird. And that's, that was like the first script that Layman wrote for me. Um, and that was like when things got weird. Um, and I, like, from there, it became more of a humor book because in the beginning, I don't remember really laughing out loud at the scripts. And then when Poyo came on, they just got dialed up like even more. And since then, it's just been, I mean, she was, she was probably known as a comedy book, I think. Yeah, except to the Eisner nominate, uh, <laughs> Eisner judges. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Rob, are you kind of reading the book as you go through? Is, 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 do you know what's going to come, or do you pretty much find out when, when uh, John gives you the script? Well, I know, like, he kind of told me the ending the first time we ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, accidentally, he was a little drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he didn't flat out tell me the ending, but he told me a very big part of it. And since then, like, I kind of ask, like, again, like, I know where it's going, but I, I am a fan of the book myself. Like, it, this is literally a book I would want to read. So, like, I ask him all the time, like, hey, what's coming up with this? And he'll drop little hints and little, like, tidbits. And every now and again, he'll drop a bomb and be like, you know, this is going to happen to this guy in issue 44. He's like, holy crap, are you serious? Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, like, like, we actually just, like he said, he he writes out a sequence, which can be a little hairy because having the next issue would be ideal. But, like, I got the script in for issue 44, which is arguably the most hardcore issue we've done so far, next to issue 30, probably. And that was just jaw on the floor like i can't believe that just happened and, and these are things i've known was coming but as soon as they hit like it's even more dramatic and, and kind of stunning so how mm. emotional was it for you to draw like the uh the, the tony with an eye death stuff well again like i knew it was coming i mean we we had actually been talking about this since 2009 so we i had been dreading it for like three years and then when we finally got to it like i finally got the script and it actually wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be because the way he wrote it, like, you know, in, in my head, like, I'm thinking, like, oh, like, this poor girl, like, she's getting tortured and all this horrible stuff, missing limbs and all that. Spoiler. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Like, I was picturing her reacting more like, you know, I guess a normal person would, <laughs> you know, freaking out and crying, which is not how she handled it. She handled it. She basically kind of won the day, even though she, she ends up getting killed. And her reaction to it made it way less horrific than it was in my head. So, like, it, it ended up not being as painful as I had been picturing it for a few years. But it was still really, really bad. Yeah, well, it was uh, hard for me to write, that's for sure. But, you know, I, I knew I didn't want her to be, you know, the screaming Saw victim or, you know, the typical sort of female in a DC book who just gets killed to, pre- <laughs> you know, tortured and killed to prepare, you know, propel the character into action. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Which is pretty much what I had been picturing was the uh, was kind of the, the identity crisis, like, you know, crime, crime, uh, female death. So mm. thank God it wasn't that. You know, I, I want to give everyone a good death and the bodies are going to start dropping. This tagline it, for the for the interview right there. You know, I like Walking Dead, but the problem with Walking Dead is. You get bitten and either get amputated and you turn into a zombie and, and you, th- there's not a lot of diversity to those deaths. 
there's no chance of anyone coming back. There's no chance of kind of irony or anything beyond, you know, what it is and choose a little more diverse that way where, uh, yeah, a lot of people die and they'll all have very different memorable uh, deaths with meaning. I want to go back actually for a second because uh, you guys were talking about how a lot of times Rob gets the scripts <laughs> out of order. Is that what happened with the jump into the future? Uh, yeah, I like, had written it and I thought, well, let's, you know, let's do it. You know, it's <laughs> it's that far ahead. Let, let's it's a good gimmick. Let's do it. Because that was I'm going to tell you as a as a month to month reader, like that was just crazy for me. Like I, I was like, look, look at all these plot points that I will have to now spend another year <laughs> almost waiting on. It well, was, yes it was and awful, no. Though. I mean, it was kind of a cheat because I put Tony in the hospital and you didn't know where anyone else was. And like, right. you know. Here's his sister with a new boss. So it's not like, you know, a jump ahead where every single character was in a different place. And what I like about it is, you know, now a couple of years later, people are discovering Chew, you know, buying the third hardcover or the sixth trade. They have no idea that issue was printed a year out of order. Right. <laughs> right. Here's the thing. If it didn't play out well, it would have been a huge gimmick. But I think the fact that like you said, you were writing 10 to 12 issues ahead of time and had all this stuff, or you at least had that planned out. The fact that it, it didn't look like you were just shotgunning, it looked like, it, you know, there was obviously going to be a lot that you already had written. Yeah, and, it, it, and, you know, I wasn't out. really stuck when it come, came time to write the issue beforehand. I, I hated that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, I mean, like I said earlier, kind of like every issue has its own feel. Uh, the issue before we did the time jump, I did issue 18, which was polio. Um, it was it was the uh, USDA suicide mission into Korea. And polio drops in and like he kills like all these people and rips a guy's heart out. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm jumping over to, like, issue 27, which is a completely different cast, like, only a couple recurring characters. You never see anyone else. And then I had to jump back to issue 19, which was, like, um, which was back to, like, business as usual with Tony and the normal cast. That was that was freaking painful. I mean, it, it's it, there are issues I'm happy with, but doing it, it, it something about that combination of issues, that order like just blew my brain. Like I, I just lost a fuse. Um, that, that, was, that was really tough. <laughs> I wanted, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to make sure that we covered before uh, I let you guys go. One is uh, at one point you guys had a pilot opportunity for Chew and that kind of fell through. Yeah. Showtime took forever. And then, you know, when, when Showtime snatched it up, they wanted the new Dexter and by the time they got the wheel rolling, they wanted a new Homeland. And, you know, God knows what they want now, judging by Homeland season three. Uh, but uh, so now we got a new Hollywood guy and he's the guy who just bought heavy metal. He's getting it turned into a, an animated movie and we're going to own it. We're going to make it happen uh, and then sell it rather than try to sell it, you know, get a deal. And uh, and this way, we're hopefully quality controlling it a little better. So they've they've got a cast supposedly mm -hmm. uh, at at least one of it one cast member uh, Rob met it turns out to be true that he's on board but you know I don't sort of believe it till I see it <laughs> yeah. but yeah we've got we've got big names and uh, you know I guess as soon as you know lawyers sign this stuff we'll be announcing it and uh, suddenly the the media ball will be rolling again. So is is if it's going to be uh it's going to be an animated movie is it going to be kind of its own script or is it going to it's going to be literally the first they're going to be reading the comic 
okay. scripts as okay. a, it's going to be a literal a- adaptation. And you know, if they if they do a cartoon and keep it absolutely literal, mm-hmm. and and what they want to do is use that as a platform to to get a live action thing going. Mm-hmm. If the live action takes a few more liberties, if we've got a cartoon that's ap- absolutely accurate, yeah. I can live with that. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to uh, ruin the end of Chew before you get to it in the uh, oh no the issues no, no, no. the comics. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I was it, about to say it'll I was be done. Cry. You know. <laughs> It'll be done in increments and, you know, probably cover the first the first trade. And uh, the other thing I wanted to cover is we talked about the popularity of Chew. I don't know if it was because of the popularity, because of uh, short runs or because of the, the TV pilot or. But issue number one of Chew was going for quite a bit of money online in the secondary market. Yeah, well, I think there were only, you know, like five, five and a half thousand copies. And, you know, a lot of them. I know my, you know, when I had them, you know, I had had a lot of books and none of them were hit. So I was just giving them away left and right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's the same with Walking Dead. You know, there, there weren't that many. And uh, Walking Dead is, you know, two times times 100. But, yeah, I mean, the, there's there's a weird speculator market to chew with Rob's art and with back issues. And uh, the issues have gone online for quite a bit of money. What's that like for you guys from your point of view? I wish I wouldn't have given an issue one to the mailman. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's flattering. And it's kind of weird. Like today, you know, I've got eBay like looks at old searches. So when you get on eBay, it sort of shows you stuff it thinks you might be interested in. Yeah. So because I've looked at Chew every time I go on eBay, it you know, shows me stuff. And I had some stickers made that I was just giving away to people. First, it was going to be buy the stickers or I'll give you the stickers if you buy something. But by the end, we were making so much money in San Diego. It's just like, fuck it, have a sticker. Uh, <laughs> but someone was selling two chew stickers for 20 bucks on eBay. And I'm like, wait, I've got like a few hundred in a drawer over here. I could do it. You flood the so market. It's, it's kind of weird. You know, and it's it's a little bit offensive when you see the speculators, you know, the guys who are in line for a variant. And yeah. you just know they're going to flip it to profit from you. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if we were really in it for the money, we could be doing that ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some cases, uh, Chew Number One goes for more than an original page. <laughs> oh, oh, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, Chew Number One, I've seen it as high as like 15, 1800 bucks. Oh, God. <laughs> My God. <laughs> yeah. And I really, I thought, I honestly thought that the speculative market was done. Like whenever Chew started, I I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, <laughs> I thought that died in the nineties. <laughs> Apparently, so, it only exists for Image now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of freaked me out initially. I mean, we were kind of like when we kind of came out. I guess we were the first book of like that new wave of the speculator market. Yeah, and uh, which freaked me out because like, oh great, like when this crashes, we'll be the book that like started this. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think Chew has the crazy heat on it that it, you know, once did. I mean, you know, when everyone thought it was going to be a Showtime show, I think I think there was some speculation because of that. And and our floppy numbers have kind of cooled a little bit recently. And I think, you know, I think that's just part of what happens when you're at issue 40. And I think it'll pick up when we're at issue 50 and we're down to the the lock and key countdown. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so animation news happening within this next 10 issues wouldn't be a terrible thing. Have sales numbers climbed as you guys have gone on or is well, they had, and then they, they stayed level for a ridiculous amount of time. Like, 
issues did not move. And then just recently, just in the last three or four issues, it's dropped a bit in floppy numbers. Mm -hmm. But our digital sales are crazy. Our trades are, are crazy. We're in multiple print printings in French, Italian, and German. And now we're in Spain, Spanish, Mexico, Spanish. And we've got Portuguese, Polish, and Turkish deals on the way. So even as our floppies kind of cool a little, we're still doing spectacular. You know, can't really complain. Well, even though I'm reading it in trade, I really enjoy it. And I'm really waiting for the next one. I've got number seven here, waiting for number eight. <laughs> well, it's weird because I, you know, I... I write it a couple ways. You know, I, I try to give you a bang for your buck every issue, mm -hmm. but I write it with five issues in mind, and I also write it in ten issues in mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're reading it in either hardcover or softcover, you know, I, I, I'm writing it for both of you, but in kind of a different way, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, you know, we've got our big absolute editions that just came out, the Smorgasbord editions, that's the first 20 issues. So in the end, we'll have 60 issues, 12 trades, six hardcovers, and three Smorgasbord editions. And see, I think this, like, I'm looking forward to the Smorgasbord editions. Like, that's actually what I'm buying now. Oh, they're, they're spectacular, although it, it'll, yeah. you know, it'll give you, you'll be muscular after reading it. Uh. <laughs> but they look, first off, they look great on the, on the shelf. But the other thing is I love reading a ton of comics in a clip. And like you said, by the time 60 hits... I will want to go down, go go sit down and read all of two in one sitting. You know, we plant a lot of seeds in there that you know we try to make it, uh, you know, worth your time for repeated uh, reading. And I think it actually reads better in large chunks, just because there are so many like little threads that we kind of lay through there. Like, like we just in issue forty paid off something that kind of was was laid in like issue four. So like it's it's a long game and but I so, also think that Chew yeah, is so dense that if you if you were to sat down and I love reading Walking Dead in uh, the Absolute Editions because it's so decompressed you can sit down and like really read forty issues in a time whereas mm -hmm. Chew is so dense I think if you uh, read like twenty issues in a row you'd be pretty exhausted. <laughs> well, my other thing about it like the thing that I'm liking about reading it in, in individual issues is that. You know, Rob, you sneak in a lot of little references and, and things into the art that yeah. when I have one issue in front of me, I can sort of absorb all of that. Mm -hmm. And instead of, you know, with the smorgasbord editions, those are going to be meant for like a big giant reading excursion. But however, month to month, I get to sort of examine everything that you've kind of dropped in as, as little Easter eggs and hints and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the purpose was um, to kind of um, make it as rereadable as possible. Like, I mean, I, I kind of got the idea from Watchmen. Like, I used to have this this copy of Watchmen on my coffee table, and I just whip it out every now and again and kind of flip through it. And, I mean, every time I picked it up, I found something else. Like, the, you know, a little sign that I didn't see the first time or a little newspaper heading or something that, you know, just kind of like reinforces the story without actually maybe being in the script. And that's kind, of, that's kind of what I try to do with the, the Easter eggs and chew. And there's kind of an art to it, just like not like there. There are scenes where, you know, I really lay it on thick where I'm going for the laugh and everything. But there are other scenes where, you know, like a character dies or something and I won't put any Easter eggs in it just because I, I don't want to I don't want to take away from what John's doing in the script. So it's, it's kind of a it's, it's a little art to it. One of the last things I want to talk about is it's just the uh, <laughs> we were talking about sort of going off the uh off the deep end and, and sort of doing things that you thought were just like way too nasty like the 
the poop joke. Uh, well, not really joke so much as the scene where it's like going to be too much. As far as the variant covers on 24, on issue 24, is that's a subtle like joke, right? As far as uh, the colors. Well, what happened was, A, I don't like to do a lot of variant covers. I'm not detective. They do like five variant covers an issue. And like people will hand me issues of detective to re- to, to sign. I'm like, wait, did I even write that issue? And then <laughs> I can't keep track of it. And I think the more variants you do, the less special they are. So we've tried to do just one a year. And, you know, not always, you know, we did we did a, a Reservoir Chogs, you know, follow up to our Pullet Fiction because that made sense and was fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was a second printing. And then we've done these kind of Olive Tony covers that are 50 50. But I don't right. really consider that a variant because it's not it's not rare. Like you don't have to you can buy each of them for three bucks and that won't you know break the bank. And but I don't want you to have to go out every month and you know find a twenty dollar thirty dollar cover so typically we we do one for san diego because san diego is a huge expense and you know we got to pay for it so we do some sort of cover enhancement and with 24 image expo was happening and they wanted a variant and even though we don't like to do variants like this was like their their 20th 25th anniversary it was it was special for image and we wanted to be part of that you know as a thank you to image but we also mm-hmm. didn't have time. So the chocolate cover we did, Rob recolored it yellow and we called it the butter variant. And we did a very, <laughs> very limited edition of the butter variant for Image Expo. John, you you lettered the book too, right? Yeah, I letter. I do the production. Rob, Rob's done a bunch of the templates, uh, which, you know, I update. But yeah, I, I sort of do all the design now. You know, Rob, Rob will do like the sketchbook pages and I'll do the rest. But yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of wear my designer hat uh, on Chew and, you know, Rob has his color assistant. But other than that, you know, it's just, you know, him and me on the entire book. And I also like when I was an editor back in the days where you would use film and you'd have to rush film out at 6 p.m. to, um, you know, get to FedEx, uh, you know, Friday would roll around. I'd need corrections. And you couldn't get hold of a letterer because they were out drinking the night before. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so eventually I'm like, wait a minute. I know Illustrator. I'll just make the corrections myself. And then when it came time to do my own book, it's like, wait, no one is going to give as much love to lettering a book, you know, as I am. And so, you know, I, I try to letter my own stuff. And I'm certainly going to letter my own cre- creator own stuff because, you know, I'll sit there when I'm watching TV during some evening and noodle a sound effect for for 45 minutes and some bucks some somebody who's working for you know 12 bucks 15 bucks a page is not going to do that they're going to try to get that done as fast as possible actually right 15 bucks a page is probably high these days it's probably a lot less as rates continue to plummet for everybody <sighs> well i guess we'll um we'll thank you guys <laughs> sure <laughs> i guess we'll thank you well i didn't no, mean like seriously. i didn't mean like no yeah i guess uh thanks for this no like uh <laughs> i guess we'll wrap up and thank you guys <laughs> yeah sure yeah thanks for uh having us uh we re- yeah no we really do appreciate you coming on this is um this is one of the favorite books of you know pretty much most of our listeners we always get in a good discussion about you uh and uh as far as shows this year what are you guys um what are you guys looking at hitting uh, do you have your convention schedules planned out already i'm doing london i'm doing san diego and i'm doing australia new zealand and that's it 
Uh, I'm doing Emerald City Con. Uh, I'm doing a one-day signing in Toronto in April. Then I'm doing a signing in Orlando uh, in May. I might do San Diego Comic-Con. I'm not sure, um, just because I don't have a pass. Uh, and that's always a pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then I have uh, Cincinnati Comic-Con, I think in September. And something else. I have no idea. Some something else. <laughs> <laughs> I'll know when I get there. I guess is the best the best uh way to look into you guys is that just to do um the chewcomic.blogspot.com? Yeah, or or find us on Twitter. But this is a good time to wrap up because my kid is yelling for me. Well, so fantastic. Mine Talk too. To tomorrow, Rob. See you guys. Hey, thank you very thank much. You so guys. much for Bye. Bye. Dude. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. Like it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of a bitch to edit, but I think that's I think that was a lot of fun, man. <laughs>